Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Overcoming Chronic Illness podcast. My name is Dr. Brian Raid, and I'm a naturopathic doctor. And today I am looking forward to chatting with my guest, Dr. Daniel Gonzalez. Um, Dr. Gonzalez is a chiropractor in the beautiful state of Texas, to my understanding. And he posts a lot of interesting things on his social media pages, a lot of stuff about um, functional laboratory analysis. So I'm hoping to pick his brain about that. Um, and he also um, has posts that talk about um, I guess for lack of a better way of putting it, just um, things to do with like patient advocacy, um, things about um, maybe some of the uh, things with the healthcare system that could be potentially managed better, um, things around, you know, patients' rights and whatnot. And I think that's important to talk about as well. Uh, we probably won't jump into that a whole heck of a lot because I want to keep the content as relevant as possible to folks who are suffering from complex chronic illness. Bearing in mind that a number of folks that I've worked with over the years suffering from complex chronic illness have not been treated the best um, by the um, uh, healthcare system in in many cases, but in some cases treated very well. So, anyways, it's it's a bit bit off topic. Um, just before I bring Dr. Gonzalez into the uh, recording here, I just wanted to take a quick moment to invite you, if you haven't already, to please consider subscribing to my mailing list. Um, if you are listening to this on a podcast platform, the link to uh, join the mailing list is on the show notes below. And if you are watching this on YouTube, um, then the um, link to join my mailing list is in the description below. Um, by joining my mailing list, um, it gives you um, complimentary access to the first two modules of my Overcoming Chronic Illness course. Um, that course goes over all of the major themes that I see in uh, complex chronic illness patients, uh, things like mold toxicity, chronic infections, heavy metals, history issues, mitochondrial dysfunction, digestive disorders, and others. Um, <clears throat> and uh, aside from learning more about those conditions and helping uh, folks who participate in the course to uh, better understand the ins and outs and the interconnectedness and, and whatnot between those different topics. Um, it also comes along with these information sheets that can be passed on to one's clinician so that if a patient is working with their doc and their doc just doesn't really know what to do next to help them and that patient can't travel somewhere to see someone or can't, you know, doesn't want to work online with a doctor like myself or someone else somewhere else uh, who's located ge in a geographically distinct place from where they live. Um, then these um, kind of cheat sheets, as I refer to them um, on all these different topics can be really helpful to help your current healthcare practitioner um, figure out some next steps, whether it's around testing or treatment options or whatnot, or if a patient's working with someone who's really well-versed in SIBO, but they don't really have much um, experience treating mold or Bartonella or what whatever it happens to be, then um, these, there are, again, cheat sheets on all of these different topics that can be passed on to the clinician and hopefully help to uh, facilitate um, just broader, more yeah, full-spectrum full care um, for the patients in question. Um, so uh, again, if you haven't joined my mailing list, please consider doing so. Um, I also do send out newsletters. I've been a little remiss lately, um, sending them out more like every um, a couple of weeks or a few weeks. I was sending them weekly for a while. Life has been getting busy um, launching a second podcast as well, which I'll be uh, announcing more officially once it's up and running. So there's lots of irons in the fire. Newsletter has been taking a bit of a backseat. Uh, but in, in the newsletter, I also... Um, I also uh, uh, announce live Q and A sessions that I may uh, be hosting. I, I talk about just different things that I'm excited about in practice, and uh, just kind of try to drop some little uh, beneficial things to to tune in, uh, making making it worthwhile to tune into that newsletter too. And plus, I announce uh, podcast episodes as they drop and upcoming guests and all that good stuff. So, um, anyways, I will leave it there for now. Um, I am just going to pause the recording for a second. I'll bring in Dr. Gonzalez, and I hope you enjoy the interview.
All right, I'm now joined by Dr. Gonzalez. Oh, Dr. Gonzalez, thanks so much for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to picking your brain. Uh, just before we jump into things, would you mind just giving the listeners a little background about uh, what, uh, who you are, where you practice, and what your uh, practice is like, please? Sure. Yeah. So um, my name is Daniel Gonzalez, Dr. Daniel Gonzalez. I live in Austin, Texas. I have an integrative medical practice here in Westlake, um, Austin, Texas. I've been here all my life uh, in Texas. And I've got a virtual practice that I operate on, on the side as well. So they're kind of two different practices. So virtually, you know, I work with people all over the country, consulting uh, with people um, virtually. And then I've got my in-person facility. And my career started off, uh, I was actually working towards getting my PhD, uh, decided that that's not the road that I wanted to go down. Um, really what, with the what politics. Was the, uh, what was the PhD? Sorry to interrupt, but what was the PhD going to be in? It, it would have been in biochemistry. It was an emphasis in neurogenetics. Um, so I worked in a neurogenetics laboratory, Drosophila melanogaster. And this is like when genetics was everything, right? Like uh, 2000. Uh, and it was like, we're going to solve everything. Uh, we know everything. And I mean, at that time, I always knew uh, even before, you know, as a kid, I wanted to be a scientist. And so that was just my passion. But then it became disheartening learning about the politics and, you know, just like any, I mean, this isn't in any uh, industry, you eventually kind of see this, but it just put a bad taste in my mouth. And I, I just could not bring myself to continue to support uh, at least, you know, the specific area that I was researching and, and, and the people in that world that were around me, I just didn't want to be a part of it anymore. Uh, so started looking for other things and, at that time, have you heard of the book, um, Paul, uh, the wellness revolution by Paul Zane Pilsner? No. So just random. I went to the library, plucked this book out, just wanted to kind of clear my head and think of other things. Just, I would do that. And I read, read this book and, um, they talked about the wellness revolution. And this was a concept that was just kind of new to me, you know, different from, um, healthcare, right. Uh, medicine and chiropractors were listed as one of the kind of future doctors that would interest their patients in nutrition and fitness and lifestyle. And I gravitated towards that. So that led me to chiropractic school, went to Dallas. That's, that's where I did uh, my training, got my doctorate and then moved here to Austin. And I've been practicing ever since. Fantastic. Yeah. I, I remember those exciting genetic days. Like I was doing my undergrad at that time and I had a, you know, emphasis on genetics in my, uh, for my biology um, undergrad. And yeah, it was just, there was so much hope and promise at the time. And it's been super valuable of course, in many ways, but uh, yeah, it didn't seem to be the the panacea that uh, was, was hoped for at right. the time. Uh, just, just on that note, cause I, I'm, I'm looking forward to picking your brain about uh, just some of the functional laboratory testing that you post about on social media. I think it's a fascinating topic. I certainly, um, look at, uh, you know, a different, uh, yeah, lab interpretation as well. Um, I'm just wondering, do you do any, uh, just on the genetic topic, like any genomic profiling on patients, like looking for MTHFR mutations and all that fun stuff, or is that part of your practice? I, I do think, you know, there's, so where I come from, where, where I stand on this, I think there's value there. I would consider that top tier testing, like not where I would start, um, simply because you know, we have to appreciate the fact that the more information we, we, we gather and we, we come to know, it's like the more that we realize we don't know. Um, and, there, and there's so much right. That, that that's happening, that that's, that's working out with that. So if somebody has that data, I'm going to look at it, but, uh, I also feel that it's my responsibility to not, you know, to try to be targeted and not have my patients spend their hard earned dollars in areas that maybe are not going to be of interest right now. Not saying that that's not valuable, but just 
where I typically would start with somebody. There's a whole lot of let work that that I feel that we should work on, right? Uh, accomplish. And then we can get to that. And I would consider that optimization. If we haven't cleared up some of the things that we can pick up on, you know, from other, um, I would say more tried and true diagnostics that have been around forever. And I mean, in the world of functional medicine, there's all sorts of sexy tests that are out there, but you know, that doesn't mean that they're, they're, they're truly valuable. I mean, it's right. So uh, not every test is the same. Uh, yeah. Is, is, is valuable in that sense. So that's how I, I feel about it. I think there, again, there is value not to just completely discount it. And I think it's good to know, but there's other areas that we probably could focus on first um, before that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you, a... on, on that topic, are you familiar with, I think it was Harvard, right? I think Harvard did a review on consumer genetic testing. Like I think it was 23 and me, right? Which is a, a I, common. I dug, I dug through that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did. Yeah. Right. Was it like 40% or something like that? Like, um, it, that it was looking at in terms of accuracy or it was something, something, something around those lines. I, I, I think it, it was a while, like it was years ago that I looked at that now, but um, I think that it was like, there was, it was a very large amount of data that was not accurate. But then I, I believe if memory serves that the information that wasn't accurate, wasn't, they weren't uh, elements of the person's DNA that actually had a meaningful impact on the SNPs that they were reporting on necessarily. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't think it was like, oh yeah, like you might as well flip a coin to see if you're, you know, an MTHFR mutant or a COMT mutant or whatever. Like I, I don't right. think it was quite that bad, but um, I do remember like the reporting around it was quite damning. Um, and then when I actually looked into it, it's like, okay, it's maybe not, you know, completely, you know, useless. Always but, in the uh, interpretation, right? I mean, yeah. you can, I mean, there's so much to, to unpack with that. Something I just want to say on this topic, something I've been thinking about quite a bit is like the influence. And uh, I, I need to, I just haven't had time to spend a whole lot of time on there. Maybe there, there is tons of data on it, but the microbiome, right. And the genetics, like the microbiome genome and it, and its influence on human physiology, which I think is, you know, pretty fascinating. Obviously we get genes and we can influence our genes based on our lifestyle, epigenetics and all that kind of stuff. But, and you can't change your genes, but the microbiome changes, which means that these, mm -hmm. the expression, right. Uh, of what's happening at that level, the peptides and the enzymes and all the things that it contributes to. I think that that's fascinating. And again, also so complex and kind of mind boggling to think uh, of how that's influencing us. Yeah, I, I think so too. I, I'm ascertaining you've heard of like, like, I know there's a company Viome, like I think that's their, mm -hmm. that's their uh, bread and butter. I'm pretty sure. Like, have, have you worked with that type of testing with your patients? A little bit. Yeah. I've had, um, and same kind of similar to the Harvard study where, you know, I, I, I read um, some articles where they talk about like with the algorithmic analysis and how maybe that's, you got to be careful with that. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, again, same thing with like AI and all the tech that's, that's coming out, it can be there, but you know, you, to, to, for me to be able to put all my faith in it, I need to understand that technology and understand exactly how it's working. And I haven't put enough time and effort into that. So uh, I can't really speak from a, a place of authority on it. It's just ideas that I think about. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, again, it's great to have it. And I think it's valuable, but um, there's probably better ways if you want. And even I do a lot of GI testing, but I also understand that there's no test that's ever going to be the best. Um, they all kind of give you a little bit right? A little bit of the picture. Uh, and so um, in an ideal world, you could look at all these things and, and, and see how everything's working all together. 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'd, I'd love to pick your brain about the tests that you do run regularly and find to be useful. Um, I, I just dovetailing what you said just a second ago, like with Viome, like I've, I've seen a couple of reports, I think it's a really interesting concept, but like that test and like so many of the other, you know, as you were alluding to earlier, the other functional medicine tests out there, like it's, it's always really disheartening to me when, you know, a test comes out and then, you know, I'll reach out to the company saying, Hey, like, can you just send me your reproducibility data? Can you send me information on the sensitivity and specificity of this testing? Like, and for folks listening, like that's, IE like the accuracy of the testing, what's the likelihood of false positives, false negatives. And you'd think like, Oh, of course they do all that stuff before they put it to market. It's like, Nope. It's oftentimes right. not done at all. And, and I'm always, I always, I've, posted some videos about this. I, I get a get on my high horse a little bit about this, but uh, at the same time, like there are some functional medicine tests that yeah, don't have that, you know, accuracy data or uh, testing studies that have been done. How, however, um, clinically, like it's just been used enough by clinicians like myself or my mentors or whatnot, where it's like, Hey, I, I think there are some tests that have not been rigorously validated that are still super helpful in clinical practice, but things like right. biome where it's like, Oh, you get this report and it's like, you know, Oh my gosh, based on your microbiome, like you should be definitely eating this and not eating that. And your susceptibilities are there and there. It's like, well, have they done any studies where like they do a biome test on someone like today and a week from now and a week from now and a week from now. And if they're eating like garbage one day and eating really well the next day, like right before a birthday party, right afterwards, like, you know, what, what's all that about and what's the actual clinical relevance. And there's just, uh, you know, I think as you were alluding to so many extrapolations that are made and it's like, whoa, whoa, like let's rein it in here, folks. Like we, we can't necessarily yeah. make these big leaps unnecessarily. So it's cool technology. It's great concepts, but um, you know, what is actually going to be clinically useful for folks and falling back on those more tried and true tests as I think you're insinuating that that's what you kind of start with. I think uh, we're cut from the same cloth on that, but um, any, any further thoughts about that um, before we you know, I've done as a clinician, I, I, and this was just more maybe paranoia on my end. Like, am I, am I going to be doing the right thing for my patients mm -hmm. uh, early on? I mean, this was now, you know, uh, been doing this for 20, almost 20 years. I tested quite a bit with myself and with patients and I would, I would even pay for it, but I would submit multiple samples, mm -hmm. different names, mm -hmm. demographics oh, and yeah. all that. You know, I would do that over and over with all just different companies. And, you know, where I'm at, I am today is like, I've kind of narrowed that down to a few companies that I work with. Uh, Sometimes I fully admit that, you know, they're still not the best that, that we, but it's, but it's good enough for me to move forward. And I think over time, this is also why they call it practice, right? You learn, you get to pick up on patterns and it could be relative, meaning there's data that you get back from some of these reports that there's a consistency there in terms of the type of the phenotype or the expression of what you're going to expect to see from a patient. And it confirms something. So, you know, there's that, right. It's just the experience of working with a report, a lab and a particular type of test and seeing, you know, what comes back from that. And you kind of already knowing, oh, this is, this is what I see in, in different population or different people um, that are struggling with maybe a similar type of condition. But yeah, I think that's, you know, those tests, what I would call functional testing, which would be like microbiome testing, advanced hormone testing, food sensitivity testing, organic acid testing, all that great, sexy, interesting stuff. But I, I put that on the second level uh, of where I would go. I would always, and uh, I think almost any good clinician is going to start with a good uh, deep dive into somebody's health history. Uh, you know, just literally, what is the patient saying to you, right? Like what, in their own words, what is their story? I think that's something that's, that's where we should start. That's mm -hmm. the, the, the beginning of your diagnostics, right? And they're going to tell you, I mean, we, we're our own best doctors and they may not have a name for it, which is fine, but they're going to describe to you the things that are going on. And if you can pick up on mapping that 
with the physiology that they don't understand. I think that's where a, a lot of the work comes in. So I rely on, of course, you know, deep dives with the health histories. That's where I'm starting, right? So we're talking about like, where do we start? You know, obviously that medical questionnaires, uh, like, you know, the metabolic assessment forms, things like that, where there's so many questions that you'd, you'd want to ask a patient because they're not thinking about it. But when you ask them, they're like, oh yeah. And, and it's a clue into what's happening. And with these, you know, like a metabolic assessment uh, form, you can look into kidney function, hyperglycemia, hypoglycemia, uh, detox capacity, hormone imbalances, right? All these things. And they're telling you, and then you can, uh, again, begin the process of, of going down those roads just from their story, just from what they say. So there's a lot to, to obviously start with just that. Um, I think that's important, right? Uh, valuable for, for uh, as a starting point. Um, I like to talk about blood, guts, and hormones um, quite a bit meaning like mm -hmm. a therapeutic ladder, right? A, mm -hmm. uh, does that make sense? Have you, I don't know if you've, 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 you feel the same way, but yeah, blood and then digestive function. And then, you know, kind of, uh, if you're going to move on hormones, meaning hormones, food sensitivity, testing, uh, genetic testing, all the other stuff, right. That's on top of that. Yeah. Uh, and I guess just to flesh that out a bit more, if you don't mind, cause I, uh, was hoping we could talk quite a bit about, you know, functional laboratory testing, since it's just not a mm -hmm. topic that a lot of folks necessarily talk about. And especially where you've clearly thought this through and you're an earnest clinician. So I'd, I'd love to hear your, uh, your, your feedback about this. So do you mind walking us through that a bit more, like in terms of like, maybe we could, uh, just talk about the testing that you'd be thinking about as far as, you know, blood, guts, hormones, like, would you mind speaking to each yes. of those and we'll just go from there. So most people, you know, if they do diagnostics, like if you're going to go to your, your doctor, a lot of times you're going to, you're going to get a, a blood chemistry order mm -hmm. and more often than not, I don't want to judge. I mean, there's a lot of clinicians that probably do deeper dives and I'm going to say this, but more often than not, it's super basic. I mean, it's like people get blood chemistry done and they'll say, you'll hear it. I did blood chemistry, can't figure out what's wrong with me. Doctor says I'm fine. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yeah, so first of all, we have to think about, you know, the, the, the type of testing that was done, the amount of testing that was done. And again, if it's super basic, I like to look at it like forecasting the weather, where if I ask you to tell me what the weather is going to be like next week, and I only gave you two days out of the year, you're not going to have a very good forecast, right? It's, you don't have enough data to be able to determine what's happening. If I gave you 30 years worth of data, well, now we're talking, you can then Put together a pretty good idea of, of what's going to happen and that's how i look at blood chemistry where if you're going to get it done try to go as wide as you can get comprehensive testing done because it's going to paint a picture of what's happening and you're going to have a better idea and again like i said more often than not somebody's had super basic tests so they're told yeah nothing's wrong but that's because you didn't look uh in the right area uh and so the story that you're getting is is just that um and, and if I could just interrupt for one mm -hmm. second here, and I was meaning to say that at the start of the chat, but uh, as per usual, uh, nothing discussed during these podcasts should be construed as medical advice. So for informational purposes only, if uh, anyone listening needs medical advice, please talk to your healthcare provider to get that advice. Um, just before you go on, uh, Dr. Gonzalez, if you don't mind, um, could you just um, outline like um, just, uh, I don't know, just kind of rapid fire, like what are some of the labs that you'd like to see like on quite a comprehensive, um, basic, mm -hmm, uh, sure. blood chemistry labs. You can break it down based on system, right? So blood sugar, I think is such an important place to start. I mean, if blood sugar is imbalanced, like every single chronic health condition is going to be negatively influenced from that. Right. So again, super basic, but when we talk about that, it's not enough just to measure blood glucose, just fat serum, you know, blood, uh, uh fasting glucose. So I like to look at, uh, fasting glucose, insulin, A1C hemoglobin, uh, C-peptide, fructosamine. So those are kind of the main markers. And then you can calculate from that HOMA scores. 
um, which is your insulin sensitivity and insulin resistance and kind of gives you an indication of beta cell function. Um, so, you know, start with that and look at blood chemistry uh, with, with, or blood sugar, I'm sorry. And that's kind of the, where I'd start with that. I would do a metabolic panel, CBC, lipid panel. Uh, um, there's inflammation markers that of course I'm going to add into that um, nutrient markers. B1, B6, B12, folate, vitamin C, vitamin A. So just kind of get a baseline of like, okay, what are your nutrients looking like? Minerals would be part of that as well, like magnesium and copper and zinc, you know, things like that. Um, I like to do a little bit more uh, immune markers for, for people. Let's say it's something like immunoglobulins, uh, antibodies to see if there's any signs of, most people are walking around and have never had like antibody testing. And, you know, as, as you may know, I mean, autoimmunity is, just ramp it now. Right. And, and there's a lot of uh, people that are just kind of not diagnosed because nobody's looking at it. And so, uh, honestly, uh, I'll, I'll always start with some autoimmune markers just to, uh, just to screen for it. And, and uh, um, sorry to interrupt, but on, on that note, like, are you talking like just an ANA or would you have other autoimmune markers? Like an TPO RF always. Yeah. Oh, like sure, thyroid sure. prox. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the most common, right? Like it's mm -hmm. just, um, so that, that, uh, TPO I'll do a ANA, uh, TPO TG, um, if somebody has signs from their clinical history of stomach acid digestive issues, I'll look at, you know, like, um, antiparietal antibody, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, cause I want to know as soon as possible, you know, is this going on? Generally speaking, if you see an uh, autoimmune, um, marker that shows up, then that's just going to open up everything else because it's like, okay, where else, right? Mm -hmm. What else in the body? Uh, and there's dozens and dozens of markers, but again, you start with a couple to see, is there a pulse? Is there anything there that's going to show up? Um, you know, before moving forward. Um, and, and just a follow-up question on that, like uh, I have a great idea to test for anti-parietal antibodies. Um, and I've had you know, more patients than I can count with uh, low stomach acid slash hypochlorhydria. Um, it's not a test that I've really ever thought to run. So I'm just wondering like of the many patients that you've run the anti-parietal antibodies on, um, is it like a semi-common thing? Has it been like, you know, one or two cases out of hundreds and or thousands or like just yeah it's not a it's not super common but more common than you think okay you know i mean it's it's i, I do see it quite a bit okay. um but i it's not the majority right i mean yeah i mean there's there's so many people with with uh like tpo right uh, that have course, yeah. hashimoto's or some kind of activity like that mm -hmm. ana's there's a lot of people where it's not enough to where you would get a full diagnosis of like, this is what's going on. But it, mm -hmm. again, there's something interesting there that at least should be monitored yeah. right over time. Um, uh, and that's the other thing. The difficulty with testing is that we have to appreciate that our bodies are complex and diurnal and there's all these moving parts. And just because it comes back negative one time doesn't mean that it's negative, right? It's just sure. at that moment in time, it didn't show up. So for me, at least the way that I practice is and the way that I work with patients, I do a lot of pre-post testing I'll confirm if, if antibodies came back negative, I'm going to do it again. And then I'll do it again. And for me, if there's three where it's, and then I'm going to say, okay, then I feel safe moving forward with this conversation that we're not dealing with autoimmunity, but until that happens uh, and sure enough, I've seen where it's like negative, negative third time, boom, something shows up. Mm -hmm. And so then it's like, okay, then, then we start paying attention to that. And, and just with the testing frequency, like, is that I'm going to test you every three months or like, are those serial tests? Uh, like how, how would you space out those first three tests? Like on average? Yeah. So I can't speak for, you know, obviously all doctors, but the way that I, I work is typically like eight weeks. It just depends, right? Like on how severe, what I'm looking at, is it, is it stuff it's hormone related, nutrient related gut stuff. 
Um, but I would say on average, probably about eight weeks, like I'm going to, I'm going to do the workup, find imbalances, put together what I think is the best plan for them. They're going to execute that plan. And then about eight weeks, uh, I'll retest to see, you know, it's just like, it's, 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 it's an experiment, right? So it's like, how is this working out for you? And let's check in and see if we're moving the needle in any way. And if we are great, if we're not, well, then let's rework it. We're missing something. And that, it's just that it's just the trial and error until we get it to where we see improvement. And then I'll try to maximize that improvement before moving on to, to anything else. And going back to blood, guts, and hormones before moving into anything fancy. Yeah. Let's try to clean up your blood or let's try to uh, work on lifestyle and diet and nutrient status and all these things that, that we can do first, maximize that. And if you still have problems, then we can move on to again, like second tier, which I think is assessing your gut, you know, uh, for example, um, the, those types of things. And then you move on to the more advanced stuff like hormones, if we need to, you know, that type of stuff. Great. Um, and I'd, I'd very much like to hear about the tests for the guts, uh, just before we move into that though. Um, so just logistically, and I, I know a number of, um, listeners are from the U S a uh, number from Canada, I'm sure other countries as well. Um, but I know the medical system is quite a bit different um, in your beautiful country compared to our socialized healthcare system here in Canada. Um, so just for U.S. residents, would a lot of the tests that you recommend, like, are they covered through insurance or mm. Medicare? I, I don't even know the proper lingo to use, but like, is, yeah. is it pretty, are patients going to have to typically pay out of pocket for getting those tests done like every eight weeks, or is it something that's typically covered? I'm just wondering about accessibility for folks who are listening and right. probably wondering. Great question. Um, so first of all, private pay is, is always the better way to go. Let me just say this from a, from a economic standpoint, regardless of who it's, it's benefiting. What I mean by that is like, let's say a comprehensive, my comprehensive blood chemistry panel, whenever I order that, uh, insurance will cover depending on their policy, 80 to hundred percent. Um, most of the time it's above 90% coverage. And these are for, you know, all the autoimmune markers, nutrient markers, that kind of stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so if you have insurance, great, it's going to cover it. That, uh, us dollars, that panel could be around $3,000. Okay. So wow. that's what gets billed to the insurance. That's why I say economically, it's like, okay, that's what they get billed private pay. So if somebody's just like, I don't want to use my insurance. I just want to pay privately. It's around $400 for the same wow. exact tests, sending you to the same exact lab, just you're paying out of pocket versus using insurance. And this is why I say it's better to do private because obviously there's a big difference between 400 and 3000. So somebody's you know making a whole bunch of money where I feel like they probably shouldn't be because it's just crazy that it's marked up that much. Um, I always start off again with a more comprehensive panel. And I think for our health, I'm just going to say it, you know, and I'm sure you feel the same way as so you can put some money down to invest in your health. And mm -hmm. I think $400 compared to what people pay for their insurance here in this country is, is nothing. It's enough to, to begin the process of uh, owning your body. So start there. And then the follow-up testing is not as comprehensive. I start to get more targeted and I have a better idea and costs come down quite a bit, but it's that initial kind of, let's just, you know, uh, um, sink our teeth into it and, you know, get, get, do what needs to be done. Um, so yeah, insurance will cover again, 80 to hundred percent, depending on your policy, private pay. I mean, I can, you know, something like a lipid metabolic panel, CBC, which there's a whole lot you can extract from that. If you know what you're looking at, mm -hmm. it's like $80, um, out of pocket. Right. right. So for somebody just to want to look into that, it's, it's, it's pretty low cost, you know, moving right. forward. Okay. 
Great. Thanks for clarifying that. And, and just for uh, my fellow Canadians who are listening, um, it, it, you might be thinking like, oh my gosh, like it's, it depends on the doc and I don't mean to generalize or stereotype, but uh, a lot of family docs, like, you know, you're not going to get much beyond some of the, the basic blood work. Um, a lot of, uh, in my experience, especially working with a naturopathic doctor, maybe a functional medicine doctor, um, there's typically options in any given province where you can use private pay labs to access these types of tests. So if you're thinking, like, oh my gosh, I can't uh, fly down to, to Texas and, you know, get this done with Dr. Gonzalez. Like th there are some local um, options that you could uh, look into, but oftentimes you you need to you know be working through either a naturopathic doctor, maybe a functional medicine doctor. If you happen to have one in your community, we have very few functional medicine doctors in Canada, just uh, for your information, Dr. Okay. Gonzalez, there's very, very few, but uh, there are, there are some out there. So anyways, just to give folks a little bit of context there. Um, just before we move on to the guts um, step, um, I, I just wanted to point out that um, uh, I know on sev several of your social media posts on Instagram, um, you have kind of standard lab ranges, then you have optimal lab ranges. Um, and would you mind just speaking a little bit to kind of where those optimal ranges come from, kind of what the difference is um, uh, between standard versus optimal, and we'll go from there. Such an important topic. Um, I get I get anxiety thinking about the amount of data that's left on the table um, when people, even basic labs, right? Just even again, routine labs that you get from your annual doctor's visit, those doctors are going to look at those labs and say, yeah, things look good. The reality is, is that most of the time in a medical clinic, the types of cases that they're working with, people are sick. And by the time they get there, I mean, they're, they're, they're really bad. And if you're not going to drop dead tomorrow, you're likely going to be told everything's okay. Um, so if you're not, you know, it's not critical, right? Like, I mean, there's red mm -hmm. flags where it's like, whoa, this is something we need to work on. But more often than not, it's like, they just kind of dismiss it because it's within the conventional range. Mm -hmm. And you have to understand where conventional ranges come from as well. Um, it's, this is based on population data. And the problem with this is that most people within the population are not healthy. So that is the <laughs> elephant in the room, right? When you start to say this is nor quote normal, normal within the average population, which again is not healthy. So if you're normal, chances are you're not healthy. Um, and, and that's kind of how you have to look at it when it comes to ranges. So conventional ranges, you want to be very, very careful, or I would say you almost never want to uh, base your, your health on that, or, you know, kind of look at that and, and, and run with it. Um, functional ranges are going to be a little bit more narrow, um, more tightly driven, and you have to scour the research. You literally have to go and, and <laughs> there's papers, you know, I have, I get all these alerts. I'm sure you do too, from PubMed and all the places of like, you know, serum testing and values and uh, all the connections with optimal physiology. Um, and, and that's really where you have to, you know, where these functional ranges come from. And there's so much that you can identify in terms of pre-existing or, or, you know, conditions that are developing, but are not quite there yet whenever you do that. And so that's why that's so important when somebody's told everything's okay. And then you do a functional blood chemistry analysis, you identify that, oh no, you're pre-diabetic or you've got some, you know, signs of uh, stress hormone imbalances or, you know, abnormal lipid metabolism. I mean, there's all sorts of things, right. That can start to uh, surface from that. So a functional ranges or a functional analysis of your blood chemistry, very, very different from just looking at your labs at face value. And that's the other thing too, is that you have to learn how to look at patterns you can't tease out a lab, right? Like a single blood test by itself, it's almost meaningless. You've got to look at the whole picture and how it's all working together to get the story of your physiology. That's very, very well put. And uh, yeah, hope, hope folks listening are taking this to heart because it's um, it, it's a really big difference between just like looking for H's and L's, you know, highs and lows as you're scanning the labs versus like actually kind of 
it's almost like you're reading it like a story and, you know, reading through a, a blood panel, it can really tell a story about a person's health. Um, one thing that I've seen many times in my practice, just to share a quick story and, and please let me know if you've seen this uh, similar, um, if I've picked up, I can't tell you how many dozens of cases over the years of folks who have um, maybe not textbook anemia because their red blood cells are, you know, technically not in the low range, but you know, they're, or they're, they're not below the lower limit of normal that I'll see, you know, super low normal red blood cells, super low hemoglobin, but their ferritin level, which for folks listening, ferritin is the storage form of iron, their ferritin's fine. So the doc's like, oh yeah, no, like you're good to go. And yet, you know, as, as you would know, Dr. Gonzalez and I know, um, you know, ferritin is also an acute phase reactant, meaning if a person's inflamed, yeah. they're going to have elevated ferritin. I can't tell you how many of those patients I've said, Hey, can you please go on some iron. Let's, you know, iron is, as I describe it to my patients, it's kind of like this Goldilocks nutrient. If you have too little, it's not good. Too much isn't good either. It's going to create more free radicals in your body. So you want the just right amount. So, you know, I never recommend iron willy nilly, but it's like, Hey, why don't you go on an iron supplement, a well-absorbed form for maybe a month? Let's see how you feel. And like just literally dozens of patients over the years are like, I feel so much better on this iron. It's like, yeah. Cause you want, you know, mid range, you know, red blood cells, mid range hemoglobin, <laughs> hemoglobin carries your oxygen to your cells. If you ever wonder is oxygen important? or not plug your nose, cover your mouth, see how you're feeling in two minutes. It's really, really important. Um, so, uh, just, you know, great example of, uh, or a common example, I should say, and, and dare I say a great example of, you know, looking at those numbers and through a more, um, you know, um, uh, discerning eye. So, um, have, have you seen those types of patterns yourself or any, any anecdotes? Absolutely. That yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you're, you're, you're speaking my language there in terms of even just again, with the idea of starting with the basics. Right. And, and the problem here is, is that a lot of people and probably for your listeners, they feel this way is they want to gravitate towards the what I, I say, the sexy stuff, mm -hmm. food sensitivity testing, nutrient testing, you know, all that kind of stuff, like more advanced panels of looking at nutrients when on, on a good blood chemistry panel, you're going to pick up on these details of things that um, that somebody is missing in terms of raw resources and nutrients that their body requires to function. And before moving on to that other stuff, if you don't correct that you can find, you can, you're going to identify dysfunctions, but is that a symptom or, you know, what's going on with that? Right. But starting with the basics, again, if you kind of do the work there, then those other tests that you're going to spend your hard earned dollars on are going to meet, are they going to have more meaning? Uh, if you get to that, if you need to, um, but yes, yeah, something like iron, you know, and, and like you just said, it's an acute phase reactant. So I think that's why it's also important to be measuring inflammation markers and, you know, looking at, uh, at other parts of it, right. Not just that area, but you've got to take a step back and look at the bigger picture always. Yep. Um, ah, okay. I'm going to ask you a couple more questions on this before we move on to the guts. I, I know I'm going to yeah. run out of time here, but I'm just, it's too intriguing. Um, so just something I've seen in my practice and like, you know, bearing in mind my practice, uh, as the podcast name suggests, largely focuses around complex chronic illnesses. So folks with problemyalgia and chronic fatigue syndrome and chronic Lyme disease and mold toxicity and all the nasty stuff where people are just really like, feel like death warmed over a lot of the time, to be perfectly frank. Um, and in a lot of those patients, what's, you know, always quite flummoxing to them and to me is that, you know, they'll get say their CRP for folks listening that C-reactive protein, it's an inflammatory marker, or they'll get their ESR, their erythrocyte sedimentation rate, another inflammatory marker, um, or even say their ferritin again, can be an acute phase reactant. And like, it all just looks hunky dory. Um, mm. and I'm just wondering if there are, uh, and, and yet if a person say had, you know, even just modestly poorly managed rheumatoid arthritis or some other inflammatory joint disease, they might have notable elevations of that, even though they might be in way less pain or having way less dysfunction than these other folks who, you know, their markers look totally normal. 
So uh, ultimately, my question is, um, do you have thoughts uh, that you could share about why folks who like are clearly inflamed, clearly, you know, having a lot of pain and other uh, other symptoms might have totally normal looking C-reactive proteins, ESRs and whatnot. Um, and then the other question would be, are there other markers that you look at either in basic labs or non-basic labs that can give you a better clue as to, you know, say like, oh, based on this, I can tell you actually are inflamed, even though those classic inflammatory markers aren't elevated. Right. So, um, and this, this is again, with any diagnostic tests, you, you always have to be paying attention to the clinical picture and how your patient is presenting. And there's mm -hmm. so much data there that we have to take into account, right? Your patient's telling you what's going on. I mean, thyroid is a good example because there's so many, and, and this has been well studied where you have all these thyroid, uh, patterns, um, different thyroid dysfunctions. They may not necessarily show up on your blood chemistry, but clinically and symptomatically, you can identify that. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, that said, no test is ever going to be again, where you're going to, you know, end. Um, there's so much variability time of day. And I'm very particular about this. Like when I tell patients, when we do labs and we start working together, I do try to minimize the variables. Like, do you get your blood drawn in the morning? Do you get your blood drawn in the afternoon? Let's try to keep it consistent. Every time we do our blood, let's do it. If you're a morning person or afternoon person, even on the day of the week, um, all the things that leading up to that, I want to, we try to minimize the variables to try to put them in the best place to get the best data. Right. And so I think that's, that matters. I mean, it's just, it, it, when you think about all these different factors that can be influencing what's happening, if somebody's having a flare up, an active flare up, you're likely going to see some of those, you know, inflammation markers show up, but mm. they may not be at literally at the time that they go get the blood drawn at that moment in time, which is the snapshot that you're taking, it, it just, you know, may not be there. And kind of like with the autoimmune markers, you, you have to continue testing. If we're talking about objective testing versus just looking at them and obviously they're, they're inflamed. Mm -hmm. um, other ways that you can look at like vitamin D, you know, ferritin, uh, you know, definitely a marker vitamin D, like a chronically depressed vitamin D, despite supplementation, despite, you know, they're getting sunlight and all that, that could be a pretty good hint or indicator of somebody that's inflamed. Um, okay. you know, inflammation is going to kind of neutral or vitamin D neutralizes that. Um, I like to look at, I order a lot of omega uh, indices. So, I, uh, you know, looking at omega, um, threes and sixes and nines and measuring that, because that's a very important, you know, as you may know, pathway, um, you know, for inflammation markers or for compounds being produced in the body. Are you familiar with Cyrex labs by any chance? I've heard of them, but haven't used them. So they have a a, an amazing test. And I don't order this again. I don't start here, but, but this is an advanced test. It's called a, um, a lymphocyte map. So uh, lymphocyte mapping is what they've shown through, you know, Cyrex with their data is that there is so much that's happening um, behind the scenes in terms of inflammation. When you compare a lymphocyte map with something like basic inflammation markers on your blood chemistry, where somebody again could be, you know, if they rate their level of pain or you can see that they're swollen and whatever, two different stories happening. Um, so from that data, I started ordering um, through traditional diagnostics, like at regular labs, you can do cytokine mapping. Um, and a lot of times I'll find that there's, you know, there's again, pulses of these markers that show up, whereas ESR and CRP and some kind of your basic, even white blood cells look balanced, but your cytokines are going to be abnormal. Um, so, you know, again, unfortunately, there's not a perfect test and a perfect way to be able to look at this. You have to, like we talked about earlier, look at the clinical picture, presentation of symptoms, you do your best to objectively measure um, and you go from there, but it's not going to be picture perfect, you know, every single time. And just because it doesn't show up doesn't mean that it's not there. Yep. No, it's very well said. Yeah. I've, I've been, uh, I've, I've 
looked at the Cyrex Labs like a couple of times and like, ah, it looks, it looks good. Um, but uh, yeah, I just haven't played with it yet. But um, so with, with say their panels, um, are they, uh, it, and I just haven't looked at their website in a little bit, but uh, is there like just one lymphocyte panel or are there like varying uh, tiers of them? Like, you know, less comprehensive, more comprehensive. Yeah. So they, I mean, they, they have them, first of all, Cyrex focuses on like Dr. Vajani, he's, one of the leading immunologists and autoimmune researcher. He, for years, a lot of the other companies like Genova Diagnostics, LabCorp, CPL, Quest, some of these like traditional blood chemistry labs, they used his research to set, you know, for, for their tests, um, yeah. for, you know, uh, for their tech, the development of their tech. So that's why I like Cyrex. And again, I'm not paid by Cyrex or anything to talk about it, but I mean, I trust them because I trust the individuals that are behind the company and I've been following them for years and, and their work. Um, and they kind of set the, you know, precedent for, for, um, everything immune related. Um, they have a number of different panels that you can look at autoimmunity, chemical reactivity, um, food sensitivity testing. I trust them, you know, food sensitivity testing is kind of already has problems like in terms of accuracy and sensitivity, mm -hmm. but I would consider them to be the gold standard in terms of how they're doing it and what they look at. Um, so uh, they have like, yeah, like I said, chemical reactivity um, panels, pathogen reactivity panels, immune mapping panels. So, you know, really great insurance won't cover it. So again, I don't start with that, but if I really need to, if I get an idea that that's something that I need to look into, um, then I'm going to, you know, rely on them uh, for something like that. Gotcha. Great. Thanks for the info. Um, so I, I know we're time starting to wind down a bit here. So uh, could you uh, please speak to the the next tier or the next uh, stage of things, which is is the guts? So after yeah, comprehensive blood chemistry testing, and if we do the work to try to correct all that, um, which you know again, it, uh, a lot of it comes back to the basics of of helping somebody to: Are you eating enough food? Are you sleeping? Are you exercising? Right, all this stuff where we should start. Um, if we don't see improvement or resolution from working on correcting that. A next very important area to look at, I do believe, would be the, the gut. Um, such a big player, right? Because food is medicine, but are you digesting that food well? Mm -hmm. um, are there any mechanisms that are broken there? Is there inflammation specifically within the gut that you may not be able to pick up on from a standard blood chemistry panel? Right. Um, right. So so those things. Also, just the pattern of somebody's... Uh, and we, ha we have to have some humility here. There's you know, so many different organisms that make up our, our microbiome and no company is mapping every single one of them, at least not no. in a clinical setting, no. right? So there's, there's not the best test, um, you know, for this, but it's a hint. It gives you kind of a, a an indicator uh, of what could be happening. And I've had many patients where, um, like I like GI map or GI effects, uh, diagnostic solutions is the company that has the GI map. And then you have, uh, GI effects, which is Genova diagnostics. Mm -hmm. Um, so again, those are two companies that I look at sometimes, um, uh, I have patients that have Viome and I'll, you know, I'll entertain that. I'll look at it. Um, but those are the, the two that I just tend to, to rely on. But let me just say that I don't look at those and it's like, this is it, you know, this is hundred percent of what's happening. So, like I said, we have to approach it with some humility. Um, but it, but it, it is useful. And that would be the next kind of second tiers looking at the gut, um, Hormones would also be another important area. I mean, hormones are just so important in terms of how it's influencing our health, but there's a lot to unpack leading up to that. And I would, I, I don't like starting there at all. Um, and even before assessing hormones, I want to make sure that, the, that there's no infections, there's no, you know, parasites, or there's no overgrowth or anything like that. Um, because all of that 
right? Obviously can be influencing uh, production of hormone, uh, cell activation, you know, receptors, things like that. So um, I would say second tier would be gut. And then third would be all the other things that you can see that are out there, uh, you know, uh, in terms of what you have. Yeah. And your, your bag of tricks. Um, just, uh, before we get to the, uh, you know, the final frontier of the, you know, that big, you know, uh, endless bag of tricks out there with the other tests or whatnot, uh, just on the guts level. Um, so say a patient of yours has, um, you know, a lot of bacterial overgrowth or yeast overgrowth, um, would you mind just sharing some of the um, strategies that you would implement, like whether it's certain herbs or nutraceuticals or mm -hmm. whatnot um, that are kind of amongst your, your favorites to address uh, different microbes? I mean, the whole world of pathogens, it's interesting because what we call a pathogen, right? Like there's people that clearly have an organism in their body and it doesn't seem to be doing anything. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, again, just because it's there, that doesn't mean that that's something that I, that I personally would go after and try to, to, to get rid of and eliminate. We're going to look at symptoms. Um, I do look at blood chemistry to see if there's signs of reactivity, you know, are you like, what's your white blood cell spread doing? Um, neutrophils, lymphocytes, eosinophils, all that kind of stuff. Like, does that kind of make sense with what I see happening, uh, mm -hmm. from the gut? Um, so yeah, if there is a need to treat, then typically my protocols, and I, I hate the word protocol, but you know, it, it is what it is. I mean, there's a, there's a set that I, uh, of compounds that I have found to be useful depending on the pattern that is identified. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, and I mean, with, with pretty good, um, success rate, you know, with the protocols that I've developed over the, the last few years, if I'm dealing with a candida, you know, infection versus a blastocystis hominis infection or something like that, there's different protocols or compounds that I found that have been useful. But the gist of it is, is generally it's going to be a combination of like for candida, you're going to have antifungals um, that I'm going to include, of course, there. I'm going to have biofilm disruptors, such an important you know, aspect. Uh, I'm going to also include some compounds that are going to be supporting the terrain in the environment because there's collateral damage that happens with any kind of, whether it's antibiotics or anti natural botanical antimicrobials, you're creating some damage. So you try to, you have to try to support, you know, the system while you're doing that. Um, so yeah, it's usually a combination. I mean, there's like, you know, a combination of, of compounds, things that are attacking the organism that are in question, things that are disrupting biofilm that the organisms create, um, supports for the microbiome. If they have signs of low stomach acid or digestive issues, of course, I'm going to be including some enzymes and things like that to try to support with that. I'm not a big fan. Let me just say this. I, I'm not a big fan of, um, probiotics long-term, um, you know, I'm going to use them, especially afterwards, like for gut rebuilding and reseeding and things like that. Mm -hmm. But I don't like, and I mean, five years ago is different. Everybody needs a probiotic. I'm going to put everybody on the probiotic and you know, th that's the end of it. Um, today kind of where I stand is like monocropping. I think we monocrop guts too much. Like we're just throwing, you know, this probiotic in there. And, um, it seems like we should be more just trying to build up the person's natural, uh, microbiome, you know, if possible. Um, that's yeah, I totally agree with that. And I'm, yeah, I've, I, I was once upon a time on that wagon of like, oh yeah, probiotics, just a <laughs> fact of life. Everybody needs one, but yeah, it's, I've, I've also changed my tune on that as well. I'm just curious, um, if like, as, as a course, uh, you know, by eating a more varied diet and maybe, you know, consuming resistant starches and various things, prebiotics, like we can improve gut, um, biodiversity. I'm just wondering if you, uh, have played with any of these spore form probiotics. And if you feel like those have been important as, um, I don't know, a, a periodic thing that you'd work with with folks to help with their, uh, microbial biodiversity and their guts. For sure. It seems like the new player is seed. Are you familiar with seed? 
I'm not familiar company, with that one. No. no. Okay. Yeah. Seed. I mean, I've I've actually had really good results with seed. I uh, I like Microbiome Labs, um, Megaspore uh, yeah, Biotic. That one a lot. Um, yeah. Yep. Um, I like them. They. I also like Enviromedica. I don't know if you've heard um, of them, but they've got um, a few different compounds uh, that are seed based probiotics. Some of them that, especially with autoimmunity. Not that I chose this, but I just have a lot of patients that come to me that and whatnot. Um, and I found it. I mean, one of my clinical goals is to always for autoimmune patients is to try to build up their immune system, not overactivate it, but a lot of times they're low because their immune system is just exhausted. Mm-hmm. And uh Enviromedica, um, they have something called deep immune, which is interesting because it, I mean, I, I've done this over and over where the, I can have a patient that has a low white blood cell count. They start on deep immune and it uh, helps to, I've never had somebody go over, but it helps to bring it up uh, into a healthy range. Um, and so, you know, those are the, the microbiome labs and Enviromedica are the ones, but yeah, I am a big fan of, um, uh, spore-based probiotics, but again, you know, not, not long-term. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I, so with supplements in general, you know, I do t- tend to, I'm more of a naturalist. I try to, I don't want, you know, my patients to be on this long laundry list of supplements. I mean, if we got to work, we're going to work at something. Okay. Mm-hmm. But eventually I want to try to minimize that as much as possible. Um, you know, it's just, I mean, I've had patients come to me and they're on, it's crazy, like literally 20 different, 20 different bottles, right. Of things. Mm -hmm. That's like, that's like 20, 30 capsules that they're taking from all at the end of the day. And you can just literally, if this has happened a couple of times, have them stop all that and they start to feel better. (laughs) I've seen (laughs) it happen too. Yeah. (laughs) It's just interesting. Yeah. So It's uh yeah I I think it's uh, I'm same way like yeah I try to minimize the number of things folks need to be on uh long term and I mean I find in this day and age like there's certainly some folks and I'm I'm guilty of this myself you know I've always so many irons on the fire kids extracurricular stuff lots of patients like I take my mitochondrial support on a daily basis you know I I uh, sure. obviously take my vitamin D but maybe don't have to worry about that quite as much in Texas uh, but we it's it's pretty dark mm-hmm. and non sunny and cold a uh, bunch of the year but uh, yeah there's just certain things that like some folks I think just to counterbalance modern day life sometimes we need to be on some things a little more regularly but yeah trying to get to the body to the point where it's just able to do the work on its own that's the way we were designed and you know trying to work with that as much as possible so I think super important right right yeah. Um, Dr. Gonzalez, I wish we had more time because I want to ask you more about the like third tier, you know, Begatrix, uh, or like, you know, the, the Pandora's box of, of other tests and whatnot. Um, I, I, I do want to ask you one other totally off topic question, just because, um, you had a social media post about this. And I think it's a really, really important topic. I talk to my patients about this all the time. Um, you had a, a post about um, just the, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but just the importance of addressing sarcopenia, which is a basically muscle loss, essentially. Um, and I'm just wondering if you could quickly speak to how you help to uh, maintain muscle mass for patients, help them to improve their muscle mass, because as I'm sure you well yeah. know, hence the post, uh, muscle mass, super, super important uh, predictor of health and, uh, and longevity. Um, so yeah. if you wouldn't am I speaking to that a little bit, please? Gosh, such, such a big thing. And, uh, I mean, over the age of 30, it's like, you're lucky if you can maintain muscle, right? I mean, um, it, building muscles, awesome. We should be working towards that, but you, you're lucky if you maintain it, we start to lose it dramatically. And unfortunately, as you know, we, we hit that age, you'll see that people start to fall off the wagon in terms of doing anything to preserve it, to build it. Mm-hmm. And the things that lead to this, you know, obviously you got to eat enough protein, you got to eat enough food with protein. And then you got to put the stimulus in, you got to be working your body. Um, two things that as we age, you start to see decline, people start eating less. They don't eat as much. They don't eat enough. 
Uh, I always say that if, you, if you're eating enough, if you think you're eating enough protein, you're not. Um, most people just, okay. and, and sorry, I'm just going to interrupt you for one sec. Cause, uh, if I'm confused, maybe some listener, listeners are confused. So you're saying people aren't eating enough protein, not, not eating enough. Cause I, I'm sure you've noticed we have an obesity epidemic in both of our right. countries. Yeah. So, uh, well, are you it, saying they're not eating enough in general or not eating enough protein? I mean, the right foods, uh, okay. definitely. Right. So, okay. right. Enough protein, like a, actual protein that your body's going to use to assimilate and create. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're what, I mean, Canada and the U S we're overfed but also at the same time, malnourished, yeah. right? So we're eating a whole lot, just not the right stuff. Um, and it's wild, again, going back to stuff that's sexy and the basics, if you just, you know this, if you just ate better, if you just changed how you're eating and putting the right uh, information into your body, it's gonna work for you. Yes, you still have to work though. If we're talking about building muscle, you can't just eat protein and that's it, right? So you're gonna have to be sending the stimulus to your body. And again, we just don't, I'm a big fan of strength training. So as a chiropractor, I mean, I'm, it's the first thing that I'll talk to a patient about. Somebody comes into me, they have back pain. And I say, look, I'm going to adjust you today. I don't expect this adjustment to take your pain away. Um, the reality is, is the best thing that you can do is to build muscle, uh, stabilize your body, right? Uh, build your muscles, strength train to have support and stability. So you don't hurt. Um, it's one of the most important things and we're just not doing it. Um, we need to look at muscle as an endocrine tissue, I think more than anything else, not just like to look good. I mean, obviously, yeah, it's great. You want to look good, but it's such a, a, a powerful tissue for our overall health in terms of hormones, in terms of metabolism and everything, right. Confidence, even like psychologically, you mm -hmm. know, there's, there's a lot of influence there. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of trying to have patients give them very specific things to work on. Like let's aim for 20 grams of protein every meal. If you're already doing that, let's try to do 30 grams. You know, uh, so I try to just wherever they are, try to work up on that and give them very specific, uh, action steps towards doing it. And then on the other end with working out, uh, strength training, you don't have to be a bro, right. You don't have to be a bodybuilder and hit the gym mm -hmm. and, you know, all that kind of stuff, but let's do more than what you're doing already. Um, and sometimes that looks like literally just getting your sneakers out and your workout clothes and putting it out to where you see it. And not even getting in it, but just, okay, I'm going to put it there. That's mm -hmm. step number one. Mm -hmm. uh, and then maybe you get comfortable enough to put on your shoes and, and get dressed and that's it. Um, but I'll have patients like, hey, can we do five air squats and five push-ups? Like literally that's it. Like, can you just do that? And can we start with that? And when that, when that becomes a habit, then we do more, right? So where people are and where they want to be, it's such a huge gap that a lot of times we get paralyzed because of that. Um, and on this topic of exercise and, you know, improving nutrition and all that, we need to, um, it's easy just to say, Hey, build muscle or Hey, eat better. But obviously you got to give somebody very specific action steps, um, on blood chemistry, you know, BUN blood urea, nitrogen. So many times you'll see where people, uh, that's really low. That's an indicator of malnourishment when it's low, when your BUN is low, it's like, okay, this person's not getting enough calories, not getting enough protein. Um, you know, so you can kind of get an idea, right? A, a creatinine is another important marker that you can look at that's traditionally used for kidney function, but a creatinine is low. It could be an indication that you're not getting enough force contraction through your muscles because that's what releases creatinine. So again, these are kind of just hints, right? Of, of what you can use. And sure enough, somebody starts giving themselves the medicine, working out and eating more protein. You're going to see some improvements there and they start to feel better, um, you know, with it. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. I, I pay attention to the creatinines as well. I picked that up in a number of patients over the course of time. And yeah, again, that going back to those basic labs can be really, really insightful. 
Um, Dr. Gonzalez, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Uh, just before we wrap things up, um, I know you mentioned at the start of our chat um, that uh, I'd like to, okay, let me start again. I'd like to uh, pass on to listeners how they can um, sort of uh, access your services, either uh, in person, or you mentioned you do a lot of virtual uh, work. I don't know if you offer any like online programs or group programs or anything. So could you please uh, speak to where folks can find you on social media and, and if they want to work with you or have access to you, uh, what's, uh, what are their options? Sure. I'm um, most active socially on Instagram. Um, that My handle is at drdanieldc. So at drdanieldc. Um, you can DM me there. You can follow me there. I try to share as much information as I can. Uh, you could also visit me on drdaniel.com. And I do offer free consults. Um, no strings attached. It's literally free consults where you know I like to have conversations with patients and just uh, they pick my brain, I pick their brain. And it just kind of gives me experience. Right. And I just willing to answer whatever clinical questions they may have. Um, like I said, no strings attached. And that's just, uh, at drdaniel.com. And you can see there's a button there that you can click and schedule uh, a free consults for anybody that's interested. They could do that. And that, that is a very good deal. So that's, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, well, I will uh, put the links to those uh, resources in the show notes. So, uh, folks listening on a podcast platform, just please check the show notes out for that. If you're watching this on YouTube, um, it'll be in the video description below. Um, well, again, thanks so much for speaking with me today, Dr. Gonzalez. It was an awesome chat. Uh, really nice to chat with someone who is, uh, again, cut from the same cloth when it comes to the lab analysis. And I think the approach we take to our patients sounds really similar. So really nice chatting with you and, uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. My pleasure. And uh, thanks so much, everyone, for listening to another episode of the Overcoming Chronic Illness podcast. And I hope you uh, had, oh my goodness, it's been a busy day already. And I hope uh, you enjoyed the episode and please stay tuned for the next one.